and welcome to the committee program, Patriotic Tales for Gifted Children. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary. As we've said, this season we want to do more listening of actual propaganda, whether it be political, cultural, corporate, or otherwise, to get a better sense of some of the techniques and topics we often reference on the show. We're going to start with a fiction piece from the show Escape, one of the more famous adventure, horror, dire situation radio shows. It has a very dramatic night on Bald Mountain, Mazursky opening theme. It's generally very good stuff. The Golden Rage of Radio from 1932 to about 1960 holds a vast and accessible treasure trove of material that speaks really strongly to the type of soft power we're describing. We'll spend considerable time uh, this season parsing out different ways law enforcement specifically tells its own stories in fiction, often at the expense of the public good. Uh, we'll also listen to government broadcasts from World War II, lots of stuff. But for this first volume, uh, I've chosen what's considered a standard of classic radio, one that gets to the heart of our discussion last week about Squid Game and alienation in fiction. And that's Three Skeleton Key. So this will star William Conrad, Harry Bartrell, and Elliot Reed. Uh, it was broadcast on the 15th of November, 1949. was written by the French writer George Chedeuse. Uh, it was later remade a bunch of times, actually. This was before syndication. No one had really thought of syndication yet. This was something that somebody had to think of, like all things. Somebody's got to think of this. You know, somebody thought of 99 cents. Somebody thought of it. Um, so, the heart of it. How can one tell fiction stories without engagement but with alienation and still make them dramatic and interesting? How can we surface critiques of systems and problems without personifying them, like we found both in the apparatus and in the backstory of Squid Game? That's what we're trying to get at here. So it's three guys in a lighthouse on an island. And thanks for listening to the committee program. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence. As George Toudouze describes it in his hair-raising tale, Three Skeleton Key. Picture this place, a gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself, a bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light, rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green, scum-dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o-war, and, yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light, 
was a watertight bronze door. And in you went, and up. Yes, up and up, and round and round, past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, cases of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds, and cartons and cans, and up and up and up, round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. At night, you'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with the light revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad. The other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind. And it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste, what a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that, I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation... The most I could ever get out of him was... Uh, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they'd send me somebody... That was Louis. And when he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down. Because August was the talkingest man I've ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible. The way we used to scare the audience, I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, gave it up completely. I really did. I couldn't stand it. It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers and the big yellow stars, when, out of the corner of my eye... I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. A three-master, a big one, about a half mile off, and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. 
dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled down. Louis! Louis! had the glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Uh, well, can't she see us? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. The square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch. North, northwest. Ah. I know. I know what it is. What? The Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman. We did a play about her. What? Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon. Hag-ridden, curse-driven. Must oh, on... shut up, will you? Yeah, she's laughing. Yes. It's a sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. Crew left her for some reason or another. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, healing and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief. She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? Uh, this is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it, your... I had to focus. And then... My breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all, were hundreds, no thousands, no mil... I don't know. An inestimable number of tremendous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. Uh, if she's going to turn, she'd better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes, yes it is. Well, where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, you want the glasses again? You want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say! I pray you turn. Cracked up. 
The rats. Look, on the water, like a carpet. They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below, it's open. Well, well come on. And down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Right, Chief. But hurry, hurry. You see them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at them. Millions. Yeah, they smell us. Here they come. Well, close the door. I can't. It's stuck. Here, let me. Move, you. Hey. Yeah. Made it. Holy, that was close. Uh, one got in. Look, there. Well, get him. Watch it. He's... Kick him. What a brute. He was as big as a tomcat. Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red. His teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, starving and ravenous. And we fought him. Fought that one rat all over the room. It was... Oh, believe me, I don't exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Yeah, I got it. We'd better get aloft. Yeah. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels, and at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them! Oh, will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass, all about us. We couldn't see the sky, nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling hairy snouts, and their teeth. The rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly, oh, very, very quietly, in the center of the glass room, under our beautiful light, and we waited. What can we do? What can we do, Chief? Take it easy. Take it easy. I, I, I can't. I just can't. Won't do any good to... It won't do any good to stand here and shake. That's right. Go away! Go away, do you hear me? Go away this instant! They won't go away. Not until... Finish it, Chief. Not until... What? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror... And then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us. But that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it'd drown some of them. <laughs> Ship's rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir. You can't drown one of them. 
<laughs> They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Uh, say, what's the time? Quarter of six. You've got first watch, Sean. Right. Wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamp. It caught them, lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. And then I started the rotary motor. The light drove them mad. As she swung slowly and smoothly about, she blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they, twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light, the bright light moving. And behind, on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back. But you can't help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you couldn't see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Louis relieved me at 10, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early the next morning, there stood Auguste, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. Dear, dear audience, I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelotti, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of Marichal into the nether part. I stood staring at him, horror-struck, <laughs> but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, much. telling his stories to all the rats, <laughs> leaving no one out. August! August! Another one, a late comer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Oh, stop it, stop it. Zimbere, the bloodstained monster, was my partner in iniquity. He went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arms and slapped his face. He looked at me like a child, and then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below. Go on. Oh, very well then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. It was fun. We would get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away, trying to get at our eyes. Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall the 110 feet to the surf below. Look! Look at the sharks. They're eating them. Those sharks are our friends. 
Ah. Here, here, I'll get another bunch together. Here, my beauties. Ah, that's it. Pile up. Kill each other, huh? <laughs> there they go. Auguste joined in, too. Very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats! It went on all day. And then... I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. I couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked out, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, come quick! What? What is it? They found a way in! I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy bodies thudding against the other side as the window gave way. There! That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. But what was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. Uh, they're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Uh, two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring out. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. Oh, my hands. He got my hand. That's both of them, Louis. I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my blood, I'm bleeding. Don't worry about it, Louis. Here. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. There. There, that's not bad. Just the flesh. And then I became conscious of a new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood, fascinated. And even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through. Louis! We've got to go up! The next level was the living quarters and kitchen. I slammed the trap there, but it too was wood. My blood. What are we going to do? I don't know. They'll be through this one in a minute. To the gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. We lay across the trap door, exhausted, while below us the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. 
By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off, and so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting, and the hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. Would you like to come in, my beauties? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. Auguste was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a big wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet, and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder and... Uh. I found a coil of wire in the toolkit, and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side, looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about, watching our little drama, the rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. And we had only one way of summoning them. That was to shoot off distress rockets. But the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay thirst-tormented, starving, waiting. And the following night, I again tended the light. But the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted. And quite suddenly, at about midnight, the light went out. There was nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do, nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. And when I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then, the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. Then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently towards us. Our light was out. They didn't know. I... I wanted to open the windows, to call out to them, to warn them somehow. But I was afraid. What if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. 
she grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger, crewman, off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up, and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum. He never recovered. And Louis? They took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Yes, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. <laughs> no, no, mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse. I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes, when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous. Sure, somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tudus, adapted for radio by James Poe. Featured in the cast were Elliot Reed as Jean, Bill Conrad as Louis, and Harry Bartell as Auguste. Special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week. You are standing on the deck of a ship headed on an illegal mission to Central America. Before you, holding a gun in your stomach, is a desperate man who has just given you the choice between being killed or becoming a murderer yourself. Next week, we escape with John and Gwen Bagney's exciting tale of a murderous trio of gunrunners in Central America, Maracas. Goodbye, then, until the same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. <laughs> Stay tuned now for Life with Luigi, which follows over most of these CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Good stuff, right? It's this combination of things, like the animal inhumanity, but not in this typical vermin, subhuman way, in which the people think it's going to be, right? Not only the viewers, the listeners, us, but also in the story. They don't even understand the glass while the rats actually seem to know their business pretty well, instinctively and efficiently. And the humans, they take it all so personally, right? It's all this personal individual drama. They're coming for us. They're doing this. They're doing that. 
But in reality, the rats are indifferent, and that's what's scary about them. And that's what's scary about the pitilliness of capitalism. That's the alienating thing. That's the alienating thing. They're no less than the men. In fact, they even at one point make up the figure of August of the insane actor. Also, I think it's cool, the abstraction of shipping itself, kind of the ship is so beautiful, this, that. It's extremely evocative. And I think all these layers together are why this is persistently such a well-loved episode. It all works. I was extremely tempted to play the Vincent Price version because he's the master, and that one came out a couple years later. But this one is slightly less dramatic and maybe more alienating for that. But if you want to hear the Vincent Price version, please do sing out and we can find you an mp3. That is not a problem. Thanks for tuning into the committee program. We know you have many options when it comes to content consumption, and we appreciate your attention to this new season that will begin the 13th of February on every Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 p.m. Central European Time. You can support the show by becoming a member at patreon.com slash the committee program. You can follow us on Twitter, backslash committee pro, YouTube, the committee program, Instagram, the committee program, Facebook, the committee program. You can even visit the company, uh, the committee company store uh, at tpublic.com, and we are the committee program shop. As always, special thanks to our team, Javat Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Levette, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. We will see you all soon. Thanks so much. <laughs>